I'm Shannon Heffernan, a reporter and producer on WBEZ's After Water series. After Water is a weird little experiment we have going on over here at WBEZ. We did something a little different for us. We invited fiction writers to imagine our region 100 years in the future. We paired them with climate scientists and Great Lakes experts and let the writers' imaginations take it from there. It's a mashup of science, art, and journalism all about the future of the Great Lakes. Last episode, you heard The Floating City of New Chicago by Trisha Bobita. Trisha is our very own web producer at WBEZ and also the co-host of the amazing podcast, Nerdette. Thanks so much for writing a story for us, Trisha. Thanks for letting me play in a space that I don't normally get to, fiction writing and robots. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Two of my favorite things. So um, where did this image for, the, for this island come from? It comes from a 2008 episode of 30 Rock, one of my favorite TV shows, the comedy from NBC that stars Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin. And in a scene between the two of them, Liz Lemon, Tina Fey's character, says, I'm going to wait until I get married to buy my first piece of property. And Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Donaghy, who's her mentor, who's a very rich man and who thinks she'll never get married, says, sure, wait for that. You'll be buying a house on the you'll be buying property on the floating island of New Chicago. (laughs) And at the time, I was living in Chicago, going to school here, and I just thought that that was a particularly funny image, the idea that something would happen and Chicago would have to move out into the lake. And then a couple of months ago, when Cranes reported on and others around Chicago reported on the pitch by a man in Chicago who wants to build a floating island off of Chicago that's basically a big party barge, I realized... Those two ideas were enough for me to think about what would happen if there were some people who got to live out in the lake, away from us riffraff. So you started with this, like, pretty fantastical, almost funny idea of this floating island. Tell me the reality um, that you melded with that. So thinking 100 years in the future, I did a lot of research into both the sort of exciting technologies that might exist for us then, but also the problems that we were going to have. And it seems that as technology increases and becomes more available and makes the lives of the wealthy better, there's still going to be a lot of us who get left behind. There's some people with computers in their pockets and some who will never see them. And thinking through that to its logical conclusion, there would be even more segregation and stratification among classes, probably in a large city like Chicago, where there are dirty jobs and then there are the people who never have to interact with that kind of work. And so I wanted to think about what kinds of work would have to be done that maybe robots wouldn't be very good at yet. And and tell me about that. What were were the things that you started to think, oh, robots will never be able to do this. Human hands might have to be involved here. Things that are maybe particularly delicate work that also require identifying something. So in the instance of the main character in my story, he's scraping zebra mussels off off of the hull of the island, which So there's a book called The Physics of the Future, which looks at things 100 years out, what's actually possible. Invisibility, in the sense that we can create materials that will bend light around them so that you can't physically see what's in front of you, is possible. It's not crazy Harry Potter stuff. This is not what I thought you were going to say was the (laughs) the point of science. I thought this was going to be the most fantastical point. This is something that you actually found. This is real science. This is absolutely real science. So if you watch a superhero movie and you see Wonder Woman's invisible jet or something Mm -hmm. like that, we actually have the technology now that we're working on to make stealth aircraft. So why not make stealth? uh, Why not make whole buildings stealth? Why not make whole things stealth that you want to hide from 
from other folks. So there's a, they call it metamaterials, and they'd be able to bend light around them. But for that to work, you would need to have nothing obstructing the material. The idea being if zebra mussels start glomming onto this physical surface, they don't know it's invisible. Their way of glomming onto surfaces of hulls of ships, onto pipes in the water, is going to be the same whether humans can see this material or not because of the way it interacts with light. So someone needs to scrape those zebra mussels off of this floating island, otherwise it's not invisible anymore. Otherwise there's suddenly a wall of zebra mussels out in the lake that looks very mysterious. So let's talk a little bit about these zebra mussels. Um, zebra mussels, they're an invasive species that's made its way into some of the Great Lakes. Tell me a little bit about what you learned about that species as it's existing right now in the present. Right. It causes problems in the lakes today. It causes problems because they grow and grow and grow, and they have no natural enemy in the ecosystem of the Great Lakes because they're an invasive species, so nothing can stop them from just growing exponentially right now. Not, and, and every ship that moves through our lakes or any other body of water with these invasive species ends up taking these invasive critters with them to the next body of water. So with them there growing and growing exponentially, they'll probably, as a tough little creature, be able to survive even in pretty dirty water. Actually, one of the reasons you're not supposed to eat zebra mussels right now, they probably won't kill you if you eat one of them, but they suggest don't eat them because they absorb every toxic thing that's in the water. That's just something that's true of this kind of seafood, right. that mussels are going to be the product of the water that they're living in. So you have somebody in this story who eats zebra mussels. He can do it. Maybe it's not great for him. But we get a sense that the people in this bar, maybe they're not necessarily eating or drinking the cleanest, most delicate food in the world. What made you have um, that vision of a world where people may be struggling to, to, to get by? Struggling to get by, you know, we're, we're hearing now that food prices are going to keep skyrocketing. Agriculture is going to become more and more of a problem. They joke about real eggs from real chickens being something that the average person who's living in the old Chicago doesn't have access to because things have gotten so bad in other parts of the country that they've dried up. And in the Midwest, things can probably still be grown, but they're too expensive. And this is all what you're talking about right now is because we may have shifts in the climate, which could change how much precipitation places are getting and the different temperatures. So what we know could exist in terms of food right now may be different in the future. Absolutely. And especially, and especially the sort of tropical fruits that we've become accustomed to, things that grow best in California or Florida, those climates are going to change most dramatically in the next hundred years. There'll still be a temperate growing environment here in the Midwest, which is going to be good for those farmers individually. They'll probably make a lot of money, but the, but the food they grow will be so expensive that maybe the people who live here can't eat it. Is there anything else in your story that you feel is a, a shade of something that's, that's already happening right now, or as Nettie Okorafor, one of the authors we interviewed before said, something that's just more of what it already is. So, so climate change is going to exacerbate economic inequality because it's going to be tougher for average people to live. It's going to be impossible to live some places without air conditioning, without being in real danger. It's going to be more difficult to travel simply because gas prices will be through the roof. All of these things will just exacerbate those differences between us. And so the dirty jobs that have to get done that maybe robots aren't good at yet or the cleaning of the robots. We have another character in the story who works at a water processing plant. And because we know the lakes will be so full of algae, how can something mechanical survive getting caked with algae over and over and over again? It's probably going to need repair. Those repair jobs are the future's dirty jobs that 
will be done by working class people, as they've always been done in Chicago. And so I wanted to relate that to a tradition of stock, the stockyards being here, other things being here, and look at what's going to happen when people become a part of a machine. So the diver has to take these injections, which we actually have. This is another real science thing. It's not fantastical in the story, but it's going to make him part man, part machine, basically, and really impact the quality of his life. You've made some references here to the history of Chicago, the stockyards, this idea of you know, blue-collar, working-class Chicagoans. Your story also seems to draw upon some Chicago storytelling traditions. Tell me about how the style your story is written in and, and where that came from. Absolutely. I wanted, I wanted this story to feel like it had a through line to my favorite Chicago literature. And that would be things like Ben Hex, hundred and Ben Hex, one thousand one afternoons in Chicago. Mike Royko's work, the writing of someone like Stu Dybeck that I really appreciate. This idea that there are third spaces in our culture, the place that's not work or home that people congregate is the tavern in many communities. It could be the church, but for a lot of us, it's the tavern. Mm-hmm. And so, setting a story there felt deeply rooted in Chicago saloon culture and the idea of having morning bar, something that's gone away as we've lost a lot of our industrial workforce in the city of Chicago. Also, just the idea that there'll be a dive in a saloon even in the future is a little comforting, even in a dystopic environment, that there's a place where people can congregate, that it's not so segregated, that it's not so set to curfews and uh, authoritarianism that you can wander down to the local bar makes it seem like things aren't that terrible if you can still go out and socialize. So during the process of writing the story, we paired you with some research that we did, and we paired you with some journalism that we did. Tell me about how your view of the lakes and your vision of the future changed as you engaged with that research. So reading the climate change report about what's going to happen, not just here, but around the country that will change and that will change our city in that we're going to end up with refugees from climate change, that we're going to have invasive species that are already causing headaches, but not huge problems if they're not put in check in some way are going to really be a serious issue. That's why I sort of played with the idea of an invasive species. It's not stopping anyone from doing anything in this story, but it's certainly making life more difficult for everyone who's trying to get water out of the lakes or put something into the lakes. And thinking through all of the stuff that's going to be in the lakes and keep growing unchecked in the future, like algae, like these zebra mussels, makes me really appreciate the fact that this isn't just a giant body of water so big that we can't damage it, which I think many people think. They look at the beach and they look out and they say, well, how could a few little mussels here and there on the hull of a ship ruin this beautiful lake? Or a little bit of algae here and there, isn't that what's supposed to be in lakes? And so until you dig in and really read some of this science, and I read a lot of great work from science from science journalists on Great Lakes Echo about the zebra mussels and the algae blooms and some from our own folks here at WBEZ that really highlighted for me that these things are going to grow to an extent that they are going to impede people's ability to enjoy the lakes and to subsist off them. That was Trisha Bobita. She wrote The Floating City of New Chicago for WBEZ's After Water series. You can catch more of Trisha at nerdetpodcast.com. To hear some of the science behind the stories, visit our website, wbez.org, or go to afterwater.tumblr.com. Afterwater is part of WBEZ's Front and Center series. Front and Center is funded by the Joyce Foundation, improving the quality of life in the Great Lakes region and beyond.